Well, good morning. I have no idea how to follow that last act. I don't even know what to do with that. This morning, we're going to continue. It's the last week of a three-part teaching series that we've been in uh, called The Core. And what we've looked at is this idea in fitness, in business, in organiz- organizational health, uh, that if the core of who you are is strong, that all of you can be strong. That if you're strong in your core, you can be strong in all that you do. The core of who you are really determines the limits on everything else in your business, in your organization, and in our spiritual lives, and most certainly as a church. And so we've looked at the core beliefs that LifePoint holds. It's something that we come back to again and again to determine the strength of what we do and the mission that God has called us towards. In week one, we talked about the most foundational belief that we hold as a church. It's the thing that propels all that we do. And it says this, that Jesus changes everything. My understanding by talking to so many of you is that God has not just changed your life in a little bit, but he's changed everything about you. I love what Donnie said in week one, that Jesus changes everything or Jesus changes nothing. That God's interest in your life is to invade every fabric of your being, bringing his very best, his purposes into all that you are and all who I am and all that we are as a church, which brings us to our second core belief, which is this, people grow in community oftentimes before Jesus changes everything inside of us, he has to bring the right people around us. And so often, God leverages the relationships that we have in our life through doing life, following after him in community to change all that we are. And this last week, we're going to talk about the final of our core beliefs. It's, it's the one that will change not only your life, but your family's life. It'll change not only your life, but your neighborhood. It'll change not only your life, but this city, this nation, and this world. And the belief is this, that everyone, every man, woman, and child has a mission. So before we jump into that, before we cap off this series, I just want to pause for a moment and pray together that God would send us out on a mission that would leave this world different because we spent our days living it out. Let's pray. God, I pray, Lord, that you would make your scriptures come alive. And I ask, would you send your Holy Spirit into our lives in this moment? God, would you be here, your very presence among us, confirming this mission that you have sent us out on, equipping us for, and God, sending us out of this place with boldness to live it out. Lord, I pray that you do what only you can do and accomplish that through us. Amen. So Ashley and I have had the opportunity to live in a few different states over the last 12 years or so. And and one of the things I found is every time we move, um, we get the same question when we get to where we're going. People look and they say, hey, you know, what was it like where you lived before? What was your favorite thing about it? And so when we left Kentucky and we moved to Florida, we would tell people, you know, we love to be able to drive 25 minutes out of town and be in the foothills of the mountains. We love the horse farms and the beautiful roads that were all over the place. And, and I love the Kentucky Wildcats, which is pretty hard to be a fan here, uh, but we did. And uh, so when we got to Florida, uh, we moved there. We lived there for a long time. We moved from Florida to Kansas and people in Kansas would say, what's your, what's your favorite part about living in Florida? And we would say, you know, we live three miles from the beach and we could go to the water anytime that we wanted. And the beach we lived near was actually voted the number one beach in the world. It was a pretty sweet place to live. And um, also when you live in the vacation capital of the East Coast, all of a sudden you have lots of friends. Everyone wanted to come and visit all summer long. It was great. 
And then we moved here from Kansas. People asked the question, what was your favorite part of living in Kansas? Now that one's a little harder to come up with an answer to. And you got to give like the standard answer, which is 100% true for us. We lived among the most kind-hearted, gentle people that we've ever met in our life, met some of the best friends that we've ever met in our entire lives there. But people were never quite satisfied with that answer. They wanted to know, you know, what was it about Kansas? And so after laborious thinking, after really processing it, I finally came up with my answer. The best part of living in Kansas is Colorado, all right? So when you're booking your next trip to Kansas and you want to know what to go and see, I recommend Colorado. I'm a big fan. Um, And so that was one of our favorite things to do. We would get in the car, we would drive up I-35, and we would head over on I-70, and it takes you all the way from Kansas right across the plains into Colorado to the beautiful mountains that are there. And, and that's what we do as often as we could get out of town. We would go to Colorado. Denver's beautiful. I mean, there are hippies all over the place. There's great food. There's amazing things to do. And if you go even further west, there are mountains, which are awesome to visit in both the summer and the winter. It doesn't matter when you go. Mountains are great. And so when we would go on these road trips, uh, the scenery was different. You know, we both grew up on the East Coast in this kind of area, and, and it was just a different deal. And so once you got about five minutes out of town, the scenery looked very different than the city. It started to look kind of like this. And so that's pretty neat. I mean, like as a Kentucky boy, you don't grow up seeing anything like that. And so um, we start our drive. And if you drive, you know, another 45 minutes or an hour, it's pretty incredible what happens. The scenery actually begins to look a little more like this. And, and then if you go about four or five more hours through Kansas, you start getting to the poorly named city at the border of Colorado and Kansas, which is Kansarado, Kansas. I kid you not. They didn't think that one through real long. Um, it starts to look like this. And sadly, for the next two hours through Colorado, you don't think you ever left the state of Kansas because it continues to look like this again and again and again. It's like you got on an automotive treadmill and you cannot get off. It's wheat as far as the eye can see. It's pretty for about five minutes. But beyond that, it just starts getting a little bit boring. I told him in the last service, I'm pretty sure the whole gluten-free thing is a result of a bad road trip. Somebody just got sick of wheat, carbohydrates, they were done. But if you drive far enough and you drive long enough and you cross through Denver, Colorado, all of a sudden, this is what you begin to see. It's beautiful. I mean, I grew up in the Appalachians. I love the Appalachian Mountains. I love what you find in Tennessee and North Carolina. It is home for me. But there are a few places on the earth that look like this at every turn. And in the mountains of Colorado, are some of those. And so here's the moral of the story. If you want a life lesson to walk away with, sometimes... If you want to see the mountains of Colorado, you're going to have to drive through Kansas. There it is. Words to live by for you this morning. But the reality is that's how the best stuff in life works, right? Nothing that's like life-changing, nothing that we aspire to, nothing that we value or hold tightly is anything that happens like that. I mean, we may say the best stuff in life is free, but the best stuff in life rarely gets there quickly, It's the things that we have to journey a little while to get to. The best stuff in life, as I tell our visual arts director, Trevor, all the time, can't be cooked in the microwave. He loves Hot Pockets. I cannot stand those things. The best stuff in life normally has a journey that we have to go on before we get there. And that's how a lot of areas work. It's how weight loss works. Um, I'm in the middle of a 33-year experiment, um, (laughs) medically, you know. And uh, as I've found so far, the data is not helping. Um, the road to Slim is not paved with Oreos. 
Uh, the reality is, before you get to here, before you look like this, or you feel like you can run like that, or you can run and not look like you're going to die like I do when I run, um, you're going to have to stop here first. Before you get to the first one, you got to go through the second one. R retirement works that way. Everybody dreams about retirement. That day when we don't have a boss, when we do what we want to do, where money's not a trouble, where we have all kinds of money in the bank account, and we go, and, and our life is really directed by our whims and our desires. But here's the truth. Before you get here, you're going to have to go here. See, no one gets to retirement by spending their way there. No one gets to retirement by just saying, hey, you know what? Today's the day. I'm just going to go for it. It's not how it works. You want to get to retirement? You want to have a little flexibility, a little freedom in life? You're going to have to spend a little bit less and save a little bit more. That's how it works. There's a journey along the way. As I meet with young couples a, a lot of times before they get married, I think a lot of them wind up with this picture in their mind right there. This, this journey they'll be on where they arrive at 50 years, 60 years, 75 years together. But the hard part is, because I was probably there too, I thought that to get to there, all I had to do was to stop here. But let me tell you something. No one gets to 50 years of marriage by setting their lives on autopilot. The wedding day, no matter how beautiful it is, how ornate it is, how great it is, and how many people show up, is nowhere near the fuel it takes to get to the other side of the journey. You want 50 years of marriage? You're going to have to have some difficult conversations along the way. You're going to have to feel some heartache together. You want to get to 50 years of marriage, you're going to have to learn how to forgive, which means someone's going to have to offend you to require it. You want to get to 50 years of marriage, you may need some mentors to come into your life and walk that journey with you. Or as many of us have, you may need a counselor to help give you handles on how to manage some of the things that you face as a couple. You want 50 years of marriage, you can't do it like that. To get to one, you have to go through the other. It takes steps in between. See, no one wakes up with the dream health or the dream marriage or the dream children. Don't let anybody else fool you. No one has a dream kid. No one wakes up in the dream financial situation. To arrive at the destinations that we hope for, that we work towards, or that we dream about will always require steps of intentionality and discipline along the way. And in just a few minutes, we're going to zero in on a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples just before he goes back to the Father where he begins to dial into this exact same idea and the implications it has not only in my spiritual life, but in, in, the, in the outcome of our entire world. And so we got ushers coming down the aisles with Bibles. And if you want to have a Bible just to read with us, or if you want to bring one home, you don't have one, or you got a neighbor that needs one, just take one, please. They're our gift to you. Just raise your hand. We'll get them to you. What we find in this interaction is that a lot has really just taken place. Jesus had journeyed three years with his disciples. He was the center of everything that they did. And then seemingly out of nowhere, he's put on a farce of a trial, sent off to be executed by people who thought he was a good guy in the first place, and then killed in the most gruesome and painful manner that you could be killed in in Roman's culture. They don't want to take anybody's word for it. So at the end, they take a spear, shove it through his side. They bring in the professionals. They confirm the dude's dead. They pull him off the cross. They put him in a tomb that he didn't even own. And for three days, Jesus was dead. Dead day one, two, and three. And in that time period, the Roman government thought they'd done it. The Jewish officials thought they'd won. 
And the disciples thought their leader was gone. Everyone thought Jesus was dead. No one was arguing with it. And to everyone's surprise, Jesus returns to life just like he said he was going to do in an event that we call the resurrection. And after this event, he gathers his disciples on a hillside just before returning to the Father. And he has this conversation with them. And the disciples look at all that has just happened and they ask a question that you would ask if you were standing there, that I would ask if I were standing there. They essentially look at Jesus and they say, hey, what's next? I mean, I, we didn't have a grid for this. No one thought that was possible. No one's ever done what you just did. So what's after that? Acts 1.6, this is how they ask it. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Now, that's some old school Jewish speak right there for prophecy that had been going on like from all of the history of the Jewish people that essentially said sooner or later, God was going to come back and set the world right as it always should have been. And the question that they were asking was this, Jesus, when is everything going to get better? Like, when will our lives be right again? When will evil be defeated? When will good finally win? When is justice going to be dispensed as it should be? When's death over pain, over fear, over worry, over when is everything going to be what our hearts tell us it really should be? And they were really, if we're being honest, they were asking it a little more selfishly. They kept asking Jesus what their role was going to be in the whole new reality that they found themselves in. What they were really saying is this. It's a question that you've asked before. It's one that I've asked before. Jesus, what am I here for? Like, here we are with the dude that defeated death. What's my purpose? Anybody ever asked that question? Anybody still wonder, God, what do you have me here for? This is exactly what they ask him, and Jesus dives in with an answer that, that I don't think they were quite prepared for. And the answer he essentially gives them is the belief that we're going to look at, this core belief that everyone has a mission. Here, here's how he says it. He does it a little more eloquently. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. Get this, God will do all of those things. If you're here and you're worried, you're here and you got things, you're like, I know life's not right. You just need to know God's not done. Let the story play out. And they are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is where you and I need to pay incredibly close attention for a moment because Jesus sends these men out on a very specific mission and their mission is our mission. Their mission is the same mission that has been passed down to every man, woman, and child who has called upon the name of Jesus and made a decision with their life to follow after him. And it was a big mission. Jesus essentially tells them this, that your mission is to ensure that every person and every nook and cranny of this planet would know about me and that you should be the one to tell them. Now that is a big mission. Now Jesus is more eloquent than this guy is. Like I would have just been blunt. You got to tell everybody, get out there, do this thing. Jesus kind of peels back the layers and does this little by little for them so that he could grow them in this moment. He says, first, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem. Make sure everybody knows about me. Now, Jerusalem for a Jewish guy in that day was not a big deal. They were from Jerusalem. They grew up in Jerusalem. They knew people in Jerusalem. And Jesus, honestly, let's be real, he'd done the heavy lifting. 
Thousands of people were following Jesus in Jerusalem. And it wasn't a big stretch to go, hey, you remember that guy you heard about? He's alive, and now Jerusalem knows about Jesus. And that would have been great for them if he would have just said Jerusalem. But then he said Judea. Now, for us Raleigh people, we just need to understand. When he said Judea, think Wake Forest, think Cary. All right? It's, it's, you know people in Wake Forest and Cary. It's where people go when they get tired of paying Jerusalem prices, right? I don't want to pay for that crazy expensive living in Jerusalem. I'm out of here. I'm going to the burbs. I am going to Judea. I'm going to Wake Forest. I'm going to Cary. And so if Jesus were to look at you and say, hey, you need to make sure people in Cary or Wake Forest know about Jesus, you know, know about me. You go, well, I already know some people there. I know where to start. I'll go over to my friend's house and he'll introduce me to some neighbors and some friends. And, you know, it'll be a little harder than Jerusalem, but, you know, not too bad. But then he, then he kind of steps on their toes. And he goes, hey, you're also going to go to Samaria. They've been there with him once. They were uncomfortable there. Samaria, as best as I can understand it, in my like 11 months here in Raleigh, it would be like saying, hey, go to Durham. Now, I don't, I don't know why people hate on Durham. They got better food than Raleigh does. They got better places to hang out than Raleigh does. I mean, Durham is a place that if I were going to go hang out somewhere, I go to Durham. I've been there several times. I love Durham. So I don't know what all the problem is with Durham. It's a great place. But imagine kind of that like, you know, hey, we're not the same. It's not the same kind of culture, not the same kind of people. Imagine that times like a thousand. The Samaritans were like directly opposed uh, to people in Jerusalem, the Israelites, Jewish people, they believed weird stuff, they did weird things, they had odd practices. Nobody really meshed in those two cultures. And yet Jesus said, not only are you going to go to the people you grew up with and the people next door, you're going to go to people who are nothing like you. And then he blows their mind. And he goes, hey, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. Now, we love that in American culture because we're the adventurers. That's, that's like bred into our DNA but Jewish people were defined by geography. Like way back in the Old Testament, God defeated a bunch of kingdoms that should have never been able to be defeated. And he gave over everything that he had to his people, the Israelites, and they were defined by this gift of land and possession that God had given them to leave meant to abandon their identity. And he said, look, you're gonna have to go beyond what defines you if you wanna live out your mission not just to Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, far beyond any place you've ever been. Here's what you need to know this morning. When Jesus spoke those words, nobody had heard about a little place called America. You are part of the ends of the earth. We feel like we're the center of reality here at times, but you are the answer to generations of prayer, generations of faithful men and women living on mission. This mission was bigger than they had asked for or could conceive of. But here's what I want to tell us this morning. It wasn't a new mission. It had always been the mission. See, in Habakkuk 2.14, what Jesus kind of points to, he gives us the mission of God. Check out what this old prophet says. For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. That the goal for God was that every man woman and child on the face of this planet would have an opportunity to know the God who created them, who loved them, and who has pursued them. That is the mission. And it's the mission that God has been on since the day of creation. It's the mission he will continue until he calls us all home. And so for our purposes this morning, consider that the mission. 
And the mission is bigger than you and it's bigger than me. It's bigger than any one person or any one church could ever conceive of accomplishing on their own. That's why as a church, LifePoint, we partner with groups like Compassion International where you have planted, I believe it's three churches now in Central America, sending missionaries and resources and people to build a hub where the gospel can go out, where we provide for the needs and the food and the education uh, through doing so for an entire community. And then you did more. You went and sponsored all of the kids, like 400 plus kids in those locations cumulatively. And we do that because the truth is you don't do life in those areas. You don't live in Ecuador. You don't live in Colombia. You're probably not going to go and spend significant amounts of time there, but someone does. And so we've equipped them through this church with our resources to bring the gospel to places that you and I will probably never, ever go. It's because the mission is that big. It's bigger than this city. It's bigger than our nation. But it's also why we partner with groups like Stadia and New Thing who plant churches domestically because we believe God's mission is bigger than our city. And it's bigger than this East Coast. It's in California. It's in Ohio. It's in Florida. It's all over the place. And our church partners with them both practically and financially so that the gospel can go to places that you and I do not live. See, God's mission, the mission is everyone, everywhere. It's all of us. And so as a church, what we've acknowledged is this. We can't do it all. We want to be strong in our core, And it would be kind of bold, maybe a little arrogant to think that we could. And so we asked a more practical question over the last several years. God, what is our mission? You have the mission, every man, woman, and child. We can't pull that off on our own. There's no way. So for the place that you've put us, what is our mission? And our mission that we write on walls and we tell everybody about is this. We exist to help people connect with God. More specifically, We exist to help people in Wake County connect with God, and that is by no means a cop-out. Wake County is home to 1.2 million people. 68 people per day moved to this city. By 2040, the projection is this, that Wake County will be home to some 2.2 million people. Buy property, people. Get a bicycle. Traffic's going to get rough. And of those, 88% have no church home a relationship with God. Now, if you don't think that's a big mission, you need a calculator. See, what we know is that each person that you live near, each person that I live near, every person in Wake County is someone that God is deeply in love with, passionate to have relationship with, and longs to be with. And our mission grows by 68 people every single day. And we do our very best, you have done your very best to ensure that the least amount of people possible have to spend their days in Wake County without knowing the God who loves them. And so we do this a couple practical ways. First, we start locations throughout the city. There's a reason we're a multi-site church. Not because we have the recipe right and no one else does, because that is far from the truth. We start locations because we believe if we plant churches and, and locations in other parts of the city, people who would never come to us would be able to connect with God there. 
And so we do it again and again and again. And the other thing we do is we create environments where people can take next steps towards God. You don't know this yet, but when you stand at the door and greet or hand someone something as they walk in, when you pick up here on one of our teams, if you serve coffee or serve in our kids' ministry, you are ensuring that men and women have an opportunity to take maybe not the last step, but a step towards God. Maybe not the only step, but an important step towards God. And so we create environments and you serve in environments that make that a reality for people who desperately need to know that there's a God who loved them enough to die in their place. But here's the big thing, and I don't want you to miss it. God has the mission, and he's going to see that this entire world knows about him. And we have our mission, and we're working on Wake County, but neither of those can happen to the level that they should until you and I learn to live on my mission, your mission, my mission, this mission that God sent the individual men called the disciples out on to let the people that we know know about him. And when I share that with people, especially when we're talking like 1.2 million people, here's the reaction. I get one or two reactions normally. The first one's like, you crazy people, you entrepreneurs, you out there, you know who you are. You start getting excited. Your, your blood pressure goes up. You're like, this is big. This is huge. How, how do I do this? And here's the question you ask, how can I make a difference? You tell me, I'll go do it right now. And then there's others of us, people who live in this cute little place called reality, and we ask a different question. You're like, I'm one person, 1.2, I'm not sure I can reach 1.2 million people. And here's the question you ask, how could I make a difference? And Jesus answers both of them. I mean, in only the way that he can. Acts 1.8, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I just want to hit pause real quick because you can't do it alone. When God sends you out on a mission, he sends you out with his power. You cannot change lives. You have no ability to do it. But God through you can change everything. So let's just keep reading here. Uh, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. I want you to say this word, witness. There we go. See, when we begin to think about sharing what God has done in our lives, I think a lot of times we get confused on what our role is in the situation. Here, here's the definition of a witness for you guys who like dictionaries. It says this, to give or to serve as evidence of, to testify to. Now, the role of a witness is to simply state what they experienced. Anybody ever seen a car crash? that fender bender in the Lowe's parking lot, whatever, and someone comes, they say, would you give me a statement? Now, typically what you say is, well, this guy backed out, that person wasn't looking, someone hit this person, that's what I saw. No one turns around at that point and says, okay, now can you prove that? That's not the role of a witness. The burden of proof never lies on the witness. The witness's job is one thing and one thing only, to tell what they saw, to state what they experienced. And a lot of times I think we feel this burden that if I were to share what I've experienced with Jesus with anyone else, I may have to be on my guard to tell them why they can believe it. You are why they can believe it. So you can argue with science, you can argue with math, you can argue with all kinds of things. That's fine. We don't have to argue. But we should tell our story. I think a lot of times we worry what knowledge other people have and whether we can bat it. God never called us into an argument or a confrontation. Here's what a mentor friend of mine, he's 87 years old and still trains missionaries all over the world. This is what he told me. Those with experience are never at the mercy of those with knowledge. No one can deny your story because your story, simply put, is your story. Jesus said it this way, you will be my witnesses telling people everywhere about me. 
Witnessing to someone, sharing your story, being a witness simply means this. I was this person, or I was in this scenario, or this was my situation. Jesus came in, and this is what happened. That's it. Like, you should stop talking after that part and start listening. You don't have to argue. You don't have to worry. You don't have to prove anything. That part is God's burden. Our burden, our mission, just share our story. And ultimately, the ability for us to accomplish the mission and for LifePoint to accomplish our mission boils down to me being willing to share my story with my friends, my family, my neighbors, my coworkers. Because God's story in your life is on purpose. Here's what Ephesians 2.10 says about your story with Jesus. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's what you have to understand. That we were, at some point in time, the mission. At some point in time, you were the mission of Jesus. He was relentlessly after you. And from that point, when he found you forward, he gave you a story of how he changed your life on purpose and for a purpose. Your story is unique to you, and it will uniquely impact the people that God causes to cross your path. But here's the thing about a story. It's yours. And I can't tell your story for you. And if you don't tell your story to your friends... I can't step in and do it on your behalf. If I don't share my story with my neighbors, you can't show up and tell my story for me. There's a thing about a story and that's we bear the responsibility for it. And if you don't share your story with your coworkers, no one else will. If you don't share your story with your family, no one else is gonna do it for you. Can you make a dent in a world that needs to know Jesus? Nope. You can't even figure out what fraction of a dent you would make. It would be that small. But you can change the world for somebody by just sharing your story. Can you fix a problem of 1.2 million people, 88% of which need to know Jesus? No. But you can make a world of difference for your neighbor or your coworker or your friends simply by telling a story that you don't even have to prove. The way we used to say this around LifePoint was simple, and I think it is so powerful. I can change the world one life at a time. And you can change the world one life at a time. So here's what we have to realize. There will come a day when the mission is accomplished. There will come a day when God goes, you know what, enough's enough, we're good, we've done it, the mission is complete. When LifePoint gets to sit back and go, you know what, we did our part, look back on our days and be proud of what has been. And in those moments, it will not be the conversations that we didn't have and that we celebrate. It'll be the ones that we chose to have, the moments we chose to share a story, the lives that are impacted because we made a difference on purpose. There will be a day when the earth is truly filled with the knowledge of the glory of God and every man, woman, and child will see him for who he is and know the love of Jesus. But before we get there, we're gonna have to start here. Before we get to the mission, we're gonna have to live out our mission and before our mission is complete, you and I will have to live out the mission that God has given us to live out and be witnesses by telling our story. Let me pray for you. God, thank you. Thank you that you don't choose to reach this world on your own. You have asked to use us, God. That's an honor. And so God, I pray for an opportunity for each of us, undeniable opportunity to share our story. And God, in that moment, Holy Spirit, would you fill us and give us the boldness to speak and help us know when to stop talking. And Lord, I pray as a result, there will be a county that is widely changed, that there will be lives and stories of life change that we never expected possible. Amen.